0: Alright, tonight we are going to uh, again address some of the aspects we started with last Sunday night a little bit in uh, more of an interactive model and we're going to try to pursue that a little bit later this, this evening. Uh, we're trying to apply the principles of God's Word that call us to mercy. There is one facet of mercy that I want to talk about. We've talked about the fact that there is, must be a Uh, In terms of the spiritual realm, there is an offense, there is sin, there is wrong, there is um, uh, that which must be overlooked or dealt with. There is another facet in the Greek use of the word that involves um, more of just those that have a need, not necessarily a spiritual need, not necessarily a punishment they deserve, um, but also just a need and that we extend mercy to them to help them in their need, though it is not our need, we take it upon ourselves in a state of compassion toward them to meet their needs. And there is certainly that facet of mercy involved that the church generally calls mercy ministries, of seeing needs around us. Um, Most often it seems that those needs are of a physical nature. And so... Um, what we're doing in Haiti, by and large, is, is that of that ilk. They are ministries of physical mercy, of seeing their material um, health needs, food, shelter, things like that, and we are seeking to meet those needs. And so I don't want to disregard that part of mercy, because that is certainly entailed in what God says, I want mercy, and not sacrifice. Uh, obviously in each of the contexts where he uses that um, in the Old Testament, it's about social justice, that we're going to take care of the widows, we're going to take care of the orphans, we're going to take care of the the poor. We're going to not abuse them, but rather recognize they have genuine needs that need to be addressed. And certainly the church needs to be about that business. Uh, But in so doing, what we have seen, I believe, is that we have made that the major part of mercy and the spiritual side, the minor, or even the many times absent side of mercy. That we are willing to be at odds with our brother by give, bring a gift before the Lord, uh, and God says, that's not going to work. Isn't that what God says? You cannot bring a gift to the Lord seeking to meet a need in others or uh, a perceived need within the church While you have no mercy towards a brother you are at odds with, God says, don't even bother bringing it. In fact, just hold on to your gift. Go back and make that right and then bring it. And that's the relationship between mercy and sacrifice. God says, I don't want your sacrifice. If you are holding an unmerciful position over a brother in Christ... Why do you think that meeting material needs is of any real importance at that point? Uh, We cannot do these things and still expect our sacrifice, our giving to meet physical needs, acceptable before God, something that is credited to our account when we are maintaining these broken relationships that are not full of mercy, And so we looked last week a little bit, and we talked about how do we go from here? How do we take a principle that we are supposed to be applying mercy first within the body of Christ? And even prior to that, when we talk about the body of Christ, let's start where we want to start, in the local church. Ones we see every day. Or at least once a week. All right, twice a year, um, for sure. You know, we got Easter and Christmas covered for some. So we see them on these occasional basis, um, which is very odd to the early church. The early church would have thought that was bizarre, that was broken in and of itself, that you weren't meeting on a regular basis, daily, uh, and engaging with one another on that kind of level. And so we are called to... uh, Show mercy toward one another, toward the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, which is the universal church, and then to the world. And that's that order that we have opportunity to do that. And while we seem to be, again, sensitive and aware of physical needs, we want to meet those. And those are more tangible. They're just easier to identify, isn't it? You can put a price tag on those. We can point out and say, see, we did that for them. And it's easy to do. Yeah, and, we, and we can enjoy that kind of ministry because we can quantify it. We can look and we can measure how many pounds of food we distribute. We can see how many orphans we support. We can look at buildings we've built. And we can point to them and say, well, there is uh, our expression of mercy for the Lord. That we see here's an orphanage and we provide them a means to have fresh water. And that's very exciting, but I'm pretty sure God says, well, let's hold off and think about this. If you have that, want to meet those kind of needs, but not deal with these other issues, is that something that God credits toward us? And this we're going to come into in the book of Philippians. So let's go there really quickly. Mark, my other place I need to keep a hold of. The book of Philippians, I don't know how many of you, we're going to kind of do a quick overview of the whole book of Philippians because there's some facets of mercy that we're going to see here that I want to talk about. We're going to come to Philippians a lot when we get to the next topic of peace. Um, But Philippians, Paul starts off in chapter 1. There are some very famous passages that we like to quote for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, things like that. Uh, and some important passages, but tucked in there is also a perspective on ministry that, uh, frankly, we struggle with a little bit because Paul struggled with it. And it's a comparative statement. He's saying, well, I'm in prison. I've been in chains. I am, my ministry seems to be limited now, although he did have extensive ministry during that time. And so others, it says here in chapter 1, uh, well, let's pick up verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to all the whole palace garden, to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing I had affliction in my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the deliver- defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, I rejoice and will rejoice. So we find here a perspective on ministry where Paul says now, My ministry has been centered, God has pared it down to this jail ministry where I'm the prisoner. And I pretty much have a ministry to my guards and whoever comes and visits me. That's about as far as it gets at this point. And my letter writing, which by the way is a ministry that still is potent to this day. And I think we could very easily fall into Paul's attitude of thinking, well, if from a human perspective my ministry is limited by God, that maybe he's ready to put me on a shelf and retire me or take me home. But sometimes in that condition, some of your most powerful ministry, enduring ministry, happens. So Paul's chains enable us to have this book of Philippians and a few other books of the Bible available to us. So he's still ministering, even though from his human perspective, he's saying, well, I've been limited. And then he looks around, he sees people taking opportunity of his absence to preach the gospel. And he recognized some of them have bad motives. They want to be the new Paul. They want to fill the vacuum. And they really want all the attention that Paul has. And and they talk about that their motives are strife. And that is that, uh, you know, Paul taught you this, but, and we've seen that uh, among others, and envy, that they want what Paul had. They want the respect and admiration of the church that Paul possessed even though they weren't called necessarily, as Paul, to that office. And others simply um, want to do it because it's the right thing to do. And so what's his perspective toward them? Well, his perspective is one of mercy. You might say, well, he's going to reach out and slap these people that are doing it for all the wrong reasons. No, he identifies them. But notice the mercifulness in his tone. It's not me that's got to sort this out. It's going to be God. The important thing is the gospel is going out. That trumps everything. That goes before anything else of my own personal agenda. And that is what is necessary for mercy to happen. And so in the midst of this discussion where Paul has to personally exercise that merciful tone... To others, we find out that in this church of Philippi, um, where they're doing so many things right, towards the end we find out that there is a problem interpersonally within the church also. So let's go to chapter three. I'm sorry, chapter four. Chapter four, um, he finishes up his main letter in verse one, therefore my beloved and long for brother my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord beloved. And now he's going to get into a different realm. And I want you to look at verse 2. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There was something going on in this church between these two women. And Paul has to beg them, please resolve what's going on between you. You are both valuable in the ministry of God. And whatever contention it is, Paul doesn't elaborate on it. He simply says, get together and get your mind in the Lord and make it that your focus. Whatever personality issues there were, whatever argument or disagreement was here, Paul says, listen, Get this resolved, because you should be have one mind in the Lord. That is, you have one drive, one purpose, one ambition, and that is to minister before the Lord. And he says, both of you have ministered with me. So Paul has personal knowledge of both of these gals, and he's going to invite Clement to intercede, to be the uh, go-between. He says, Clement, you go help these. Um, I'm sorry, my true companion, whoever is pause in mine. Uh, and he says, take Clement with you, with the Clement also, the rest of my workers, let's get all of the same minds so that we can do the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Paul coming in and word of their, the extent of their friction has gotten to Paul in jail. So has the church had these kinds of things in the past? Yes. This is nothing new to our modern era. That someone on one side of the church pew has problems with someone on the other side of the church pew. What is at issue is how we are dealing with it. And Paul says, listen, the church can't just sit back and permit that. You need to engage these gals. I'm going to engage them in this letter. I'm going to tell them you need to become of one mind. Get over your issues and come together. And I'm going to ask my fellow workers, my fellow ministers there, to uh, help you, because you're still, there's something more important than your own private issues, and that is the gospel. And so what he used his personal example for at the beginning of the book, here's how I exercise mercy toward those who attack me in my ministry with their words, That I simply thank God the gospel is going out. I don't have to be, Paul doesn't need to be the center of attention. Um, Now I need to come to these gals with that example at the beginning of the book. Now at the end of the book, one of the issues that he wants to address with the Philippian Christians is this can't go on any longer. These two gals get it fixed. Everyone get involved and get this right so that we can minister to the Lord. And what does the next verse say? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And we have a little song to that extent, right? We always forget the context of that verse. What is supposed to bring that kind of rejoicing within the church? When two people of opposing What I want to say? Attitudes, positions, personalities, whatever, come to a one-mindedness in Christ and realize that ministry is more important than the individual. The ministry of this church is more important than any one individual in it, including myself. We have lost people over the period of the few years of this church because that wasn't their perspective they were more important than the ministry. Me and mine. I'm watching out for ourselves. And I've had at least three individuals tell me that to my family. I have to watch out for my family. It's like, what does that mean? That's the extent of your belief in your ministry responsibilities is you and yours. But yet God's word makes it very clear that we have a responsibility to the church, your local church, and then the church universal. We have responsibility to our brethren. In distant lands and near at hand, we have responsibility toward them. There should be a oneness, a unity of purpose. And this is why Paul, throughout the book of Philippians, talks about let this mind be in you. You need to make this a mental activity. Mercy is not about just your feelings, your heart, it's about your mind. And so what's in the middle of the book of Philippians about your mind? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Do you start linking together all of what Paul's doing? Personal example, here's at the end what the issue going on in the church is. What's central to that issue? You've got To humble yourselves. You will never show mercy to someone else in a state of arrogance. Ever. You will have to humble yourself. And so we need to seek out those opportunities to humble ourselves. I don't know that we ever call people to that. Usually by the time we hear of it, by the time at least I hear of it, They're already gone. They're on their way out. They've left, and now they're telling me why. And it's like, well, why didn't you want to resolve any of this? Because there's no mercy. They have no interest in humbling themselves and producing one-mindedness. One-mindedness is not automatic. It takes an enormous amount of work. And every married couple knows it, don't you? To keep a one-mindedness in your marriage takes enormous amounts of work. Does it get easier over time? If you do your work early, yes. <laughs> but if you are lazy in being one-minded as a young married person, you will be working at that all your life, and that's why even some old people like us get divorced. Because you just don't stop. You must apply yourself to that. And within the church relationships, how do we achieve one-mindedness? And mercy is, I believe, integrated into this. Because mercy is the means by which, even if we've wronged each other, that's the way we get right to each other. Is I have to be ready to show you mercy, you have to be ready to show me mercy. Which means what? You're going to have to be humble like Christ to make a way for me to obtain your mercy. I have to be humble like Christ to make a way for you to obtain my mercy. And shame on us for running away instead of seeking to resolve issues. There were issues in the early church. There were contentions. And extremely rare are that they should divide us. And I know everyone pulls out What happened between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark as the example? Well, we should just go our own way. Well, that's one. (laughs) And that wasn't within the church, that was regarding a ministry trip. When contention came up in the church in the book of Acts, how was it resolved? Through mercy. Because the apostles listened to the Greek-speaking widows and said, well, then let's solve this. And it's it's not lost on many people that the whole list of the first deacons were all Greek names. So if the Greek women are being ignored, here's all the Jewish apostles. And who do they put forward as the first deacons to take care of it? A whole bunch of Greek men. Well that resolves it now. We have incorporated the two sides and now let's be of one mind. And it, what happened right after that? The church exploded again. They grew by leaps and bounds. Because they suddenly realized well this, that's mercy. You know it could have been really easy for the apostles to become defensive, right? I mean this was a ethnic claim. That's what it was. It was an ethnic confrontation within the church. You're giving the Hebrew, the Jewish women, better treatment than the Greek women, widows. That's an ethnic challenge to the church. And the apostles could have become very defensive about that. But instead they say, that might be And they look for a merciful approach and they say, well, let's bring it in. And all these guys are Greek guys. We're going to put them in charge of it. We'll oversee them, but they'll oversee the tables. And what a resolution. So yes, there have been problems within churches. That's nothing new because there's a whole bunch of people that all have issues. But for the Christian, we should have mercy toward one another, to become of one mind. And that process involves that you start off by having the mind of Christ, which is what we've been talking about, having the mercy of God in us, that we extend that mercy to others, that we humble ourselves. And humility is one of the most powerful facets of and necessities of mercy. Yes, you need compassion. Yes, you need to have that. Absolutely. You have to See that these people are dear and precious, and they are worth the risk, and they are worth the humiliation, they are worth uh, the effort that it takes to to resolve this. Um, but what I've seen in my experience is that I seldom, seldom, if ever, get the chance to resolve it because we don't teach mercy, and we don't teach how to resolve these conflicts within the church let alone in society. How can we be a beacon of hope and of light to a society when we can't resolve it in our, cell, in our own doors, walls, because we don't know how to show mercy to one another. So we need to humble ourselves and say, here's the avenue of restoration. And that's with regard to church discipline for those in sin. That's regard to those in disagreement of opinion, um, disagreement of perspective in terms of personality and things like that, um, and of priorities. How do we resolve that? You have to extend mercy to one another. We have to. And that means you have to stick around. You can't believe how many people, well, just tell the people this. It's like, Why? to ease your conscience, but you don't really want to have a relationship with us. You don't want to make it right. You don't want to restore your relationship with the church. So why would I be involved in your insincere statement of sorry? Sorry, but we're never gonna, you're never going to see me again. Well, you're not sorry. You're not even humble enough to either open up a avenue of mercy for us to go on or to even take up and obtain the mercy we're offering you. Yes, it requires humility from both parts. Does it not require humility to get saved? Right? To obtain mercy from God, don't you have to humble yourself before him? Yes. The God has to humble himself to grant you mercy. Yes, Christ humbled himself and became a servant, even to the point of death on the cross. So it requires humility on both parties to give and get mercy. And frankly, it flies in the face of everything you've been taught and everything that's natural in you, which is arrogance and pride. That exalts yourself and debases others. And that's why we have in Philippians, you want to have joy? Well, we should have right relationships. Paul gives us an example in his own life of how he has humbled himself and said, Yes, I am the Apostle Paul, but I am not the end all of ministry. There are other guys who can do the job. Praise the Lord for them. That's humility. Are some of them doing it poorly? Yes, but it's not my job to sort that out at this point. It's, it's my job to just say, let God deal with their motives, and maybe they'll mature and grow and get the right motives. But they're not teaching error, and that's different than false teachers who are teaching error. So you can do the ministry for all the wrong motives, and I've seen that happen in every church I've been in. I've dealt with people who are ministering for all the wrong reasons, but the ministry they're doing is right. But their motive for it is wrong. And that's what Paul addresses. And so uh, he he shows his own humility, calls us to humility. He says, this is how you're going to restore these things. And then when he comes to Yodia and Syntyche, hey, girls, these women, um, be of one mind. What mind is he talking about? The mind of Christ to humble yourself and become a servant. A servant doesn't claim rights. I am so tired of dealing with Christians claiming their rights. I have nothing to share with you at that point. Just like Christ dealing with the Pharisees. Go and learn this I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I've had people sit there and recount for me all the things they did for this church. And how we should have this sense of indebtedness toward them. And I was like, I'm pretty sure Luke says when you've done everything God commands you to do that your response is supposed to be I am an unprofitable servant because I've only done what was my duty to do. I don't owe you a debt. Period. The church doesn't owe you anything. Because Christ is the one that we owe everything to. And you owe everything to Christ. How can you ever repay that debt? But you see, in our ledgers of our brain, we start ledgering this off. And this is what I am encountering. I encounter this ideology, this philosophy. It's more than a, a half the time when I go and deal with people who are leaving the church. That's their philosophy. Oh, I do this. I was like, I don't care. If you're doing that and keeping records of that to think that somehow we are beholding to you, then that's your reward. You get nothing from God for that because you're doing it for the wrong motives. And God will sort that out. That has nothing to do with this. And you're lording it over us that you do all these things for us. And what? We should... Bend the knee to you instead of God? What? What do you want? You want us to applaud you every Sunday when you walk in? You want us to stand up because you're the laird of the land? That's what they used to do in church, right? Back in the day with the class, you know, when the lord of the of the mansions and the Lands that everybody works for walks and everybody has to stand up wait till they sit down to sit down is that what we're supposed to do for you? No, let this mind be in you as in Christ that humbled himself to show mercy as an act of humility to receive, obtain mercy as an act of humility, and that is the foundation of it here in Philippians. So we got fifteen minutes. How are we going to do this? You cannot force anyone to be humble. Agree? You can only call people to, which is what I'm doing now, to us. To those that are hearing right here. To humble ourselves. To offer mercy and to obtain mercy. How do we do it? The ideas. Put it into practice. We did, for you who weren't here last week, we did this last week, and was very productive with it, I thought. Okay. Let's ask that question. Maybe we need to start asking that question of people. Why are you doing this? Mm, excuse me. Why are you doing that? Why are you serving more life clubs? We don't need nearly as many people, adults, there as we have. Would you agree with that? Twelve kids do not take 14 adults. I'm pretty sure I could take care of 12 kids myself. So why are we there? Huh? You want to serve the Lord? You should want to come every chance you get to serve the Lord. Because you love those kids? Or is it just because you have kids that age? You might as well be there. Okay. So maybe we need to start asking each other that question. Why are you here? It's a priority in your life because you want to serve the Lord because you love these kids and want to minister the gospel in your life because you want to transform them in the image of Christ. Why are you here? Why are you teaching Sunday school? Why are you on the nursery schedule? Because they put me on it. But do you want to do it? Do you want to serve the Lord? Or is it you don't like sitting through sermons, so you sign up for the nursery every every chance you get. I have encountered people like that. Not in this church, but I have encountered people that really just, they use ministry as an excuse never to hear the word of God. And I remember at our sending church back when I was an intern, and I challenged someone on that, because I was like, you're never in a service. Where are you getting your food from? I asked them, I was a stupid young Seminary graduate. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to ask people that. And uh, she just looked at me and I was like, you're like the Martha. You want to do it all, but you're never sitting at Jesus' feet getting fed. You know, don't you think every now and then you should be a Mary and just sit and listen? And um, so check your motives. Maybe we need to help check each other's motives. Why are you here? Why are you teaching science school, Bill? That's pretty selfish, but he's got a good... <laughs> What's my motives for being a pastor? Is it to get acclaim? Is it to get this building filled and have great, big structure and have everyone recognize my name? If that was my motive, I have failed miserably, correct? I am a complete failure if that's your view of a successful pastor. What is your motive? Okay. Good. Let's start asking ourselves that. Why am I doing this? And ask each other that. Why are you doing this? And don't be offended when I ask you. Why would he ask me that? You know, Why are you here working with these little lambs? You know, and I got people offended when they were lambs and their job was to take lambs to the potty. You don't really need me here. It's like, you don't think little lambs need help going to the potty? but they were offended at it because they thought it was too low a job for them. Let's be honest about it. That's pride. Humble yourselves till you can serve the least, and God will make you great in his kingdom when you serve the least. Okay, other ideas. How are we going to apply this concept within our church to protect ourselves from this perpetual seeming Thing that happens that people leave, and you know, because they look out for me and mine and, and uh, come back to me and say, Oh, we Dallas Ministry didn't appreciate us, or you owe us think before you talk. to think before you talk to people. That would be a frightening thing to do, it's very un American. much of your conversation is substantial? Something that matters. How much of your conversation with people is things that don't matter? The weather, sports, politics even don't really matter that much. How much sub- substantive conversation do you have where you're really talking about things that matter to you, to God, to the church? Other ideas.
1: To plant seeds of God's word in and don't get discouraged when away
0: we don't know God and of It is really hard to prepare a lesson and have no one to teach it to. Would all of you agree with that that I've ever done that? really hard to prepare sermons and to be motivated to keep preparing them when there's no one to listen to them. And so when we talk about how do you encourage your Sunday school teacher, the most encouraging thing for your Sunday school teacher is to have a class. most encouraging thing to your World Life coach is to have a group. I think Mr. Brummett's probably keeps coming, but he doesn't have a group. Week after week it seems like. But then there's a visitor. He's got his group, one person. And we're one-on-one almost all the way through our life clubs, except for lambs, maybe. Pretty close, aren't we? Aren't we Pretty much one-on-one at this point. Plant the seeds. Your motivation cannot be numbers. They have to be something substantial in that. Plant the seed, and that requires faithfulness. Um, one of the saddest things is when someone's here for your group, and you're not. You can be motivated to that. What about interpersonal relationships? All right. Go to the people that hurt you. Do not think that because they're in the wrong, that they should take the initiative. You take the initiative. And let's thicken up our skin a little bit when someone comes up to us and says, you know, that kind of hurt me. Well, let's suck it up and say, I'm sorry. Hopefully you really are. And let's talk about how to resolve those things. And if it can't be resolved, that we then do what Paul says in Philippians. Um, Let's get some help in. And if necessary, we'll get everybody involved. You see, we are so privatized in our society that we're unwilling to do that. Think about how privatized your life has become. It means that no one's allowed to know any of your information. Who's allowed to know if you're in the doctor's office? No one except employees of Presbyterian. They can all find out. Well, they're not supposed to, but they can all find out. So HIPAA says you can't tell me if you're sick or if you have a dying or anything like that. You have your privacy. How many of you feel that your finances are a very private issue? Yeah, come on, be honest. Um, You all know how much I make. I have no clue what most of you make. I don't really ask those questions, but um, we make those private issues. Your social life is even private now, isn't it? Where do you conduct most of your social life now? Come on. And Facebook. <laughs> They're doing it in private. Look at all those teenagers and those young adults going around. They're doing their social life in by themselves, alone. So it is incredible how compartmentalized our lives have gotten to the point that we think any incursion into us is a violation of our privacy, which is funny because the government knows everything you're doing. You have no privacy in front of the government, but yet they have convinced you that it is normative for you to privatize your life from real people around you, people that care about you and love you. And so someone comes in, and and I'm the last one to know that you're in the hospital? What's that about? Yes. I think some of it goes along with, you know, when we were kids, and I mentioned this in classes, you didn't have fences. No. Put up a wall. Not just a fence, a wall. Yeah. Visual barrier. Don't come across that. And, and, uh, and we tend to do that personally within the church. Here's my, here's my fence. You're not allowed to engage me any closer than this. Because those are my own beliefs. Well, guess what? The Bible penetrates your very core beliefs. Things about how you spend your money. How you Behave with your wife, how you raise your kids, how you work at work. The Bible actually talks about that. Tell me one area of your life I'm not allowed to penetrate with God's Word. And I'll tell you who your God is, because it's not the Almighty. And we're going to do that here in a little bit in Jude, on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, because we're going to penetrate some things that are... are, uh, really personal. So are we really genuine and transparent to each other? to Say, here's my real needs. Here's my real struggles. Here's my real difficulties. And then that's humbling. And then say, well, let's minister to each other on those. But one of the things that exposes, once you start doing that, they expose your real priorities. And when someone I go and see who's left the church says, no, my kids come first. I'm like, okay, I know who your God is. If you make me choose between this and my kid, I will choose my kid. And don't think that hasn't happened more than once. It has happened repeatedly in my ministry And with deacons making that choice. Saying, you make me pick between my son and the church, I'm picking my son. And I'm pretty sure the Bible says what? If you love your family more than Christ, you are not worthy of his kingdom. That is the scariest thing Christ said, I think, for this society whose family is first. If family's first in our lives. And so intimacy exposes your priorities. And now are you willing to let us trample on those priorities and readjust them to make them biblical? Oh, now it's starting to get hard, huh? I have to conform my priorities to Christ, to the Word of God. Yeah, and intimacy enables that, empowers that, and maybe that's why we don't want it so much. You're right, we need to get out of our cubicles and be intimate with one another. And that means humbling ourselves and let people confront us and say, you know, your priorities are screwed up. And not run away as soon as you hear that. Because the purpose is not to destroy you, but to conform you to Christ. The other ideas? I know our time is pretty much spent but that's okay. we can keep going if we have other things to talk about. We are going to come back to this next week. I'm not going to preach on in the Sunday morning. I'm going to preach on peace but I want to keep addressing this. I want to expand it beyond just within the church, local church to other areas. But we've gotta take care of home first. We've gotta get this right. Yes. I have two
1: questions. One is what if things are
0: like irritating but it's not a big deal? What if someone just kind of annoys you but they don't really hurt you or do anything wrong? You know, they just You You grow up. You grow up and say, Yeah, they got their things. And we've had people in our church that had their things and I never held it against them. I was like, well, I I mean, you're not the person I would want to marry. You know, you're not my best buddy I'm going to hang out with, but I can go to church with you and I can enjoy that level of fellowship, but I'm not going to live with you because you would drive me nuts to live with someone like you. Um, But we need to have patience with one another and a level of acknowledgement that, well, of different things. There are some trouble some guys. When I was involved extensively in, in the mission, um, we had, our president came in and had that attitude. If you didn't get along with him, you weren't, a, you weren't missionary material. He had his, his list. And if you didn't match that list, you shouldn't be a missionary. And I went and visited these missionaries, and they were scared to death that they were going to be kicked out of the mission, and rightly so, because that was his goal. He was going to clean house and get rid of all this dead weight, he called him. I'm like, so there's a guy up here ministering in Pueblo. And no, I wouldn't pick him out of a crowd. I don't know that I would be able to sit under his ministry personally. But you know what? He had love for God. He wanted to serve the Lord. And I go up there and I'm like, just serve the Lord. Who cares what the president thinks about you? Because, frankly, there is no pastoral personality. Because if there was just one personality that makes you a good pastor, most of us wouldn't be. And then only one kind of people can relate to him. And so I realize that there is a different personality in another pastor at somewhere else, and that's going to attract different people than my personality attracts or repels um, and, but that's an attitude that's out there within churches. i got to find someone that's just like me, and I get, I can, you know, but that's not true. You can be intimate with people that even annoy you, because the fact is, most of your family members annoy you eventually. And you still live with them. Even your own kids are going to annoy you. like we just wait for God to work on their I think biblically you're dealing with people who are weak in their faith. and what do you do with people who are weak in their faith? Pray for them, you minister the Word of God to them, you instruct them so that they can grow and mature in their faith until we all reach, what does Ephesians say? You have pastors, apostles, you have all these different ministers in your life so that we can grow in unity. Not in uniformity. We're all, all little people marching to the same drum. But there's unity. We're all going the same direction. So we minister to them. The problem is, I don't know that we're direct enough. I think we are too... passive towards people and approaching them and challenging them on their self-centeredness of what they're looking for in church. I mean, it's a shopper's What's the thing? Yes, go find whichever you want, what pleases you. But that's not what we're about. And so yes, it's going to turn off a lot of people because they're looking for X, Y, Z. And and if you have X, Y, and not the Z, you're not complete enough for them. And we have very little of the attitude of service. And so that's why one of the things we do when we bring people into ministry, into our church membership is, are you here to serve God? Or are you here to just get? And it's a valid question. Are you here to serve God? Or are you here to just get? And when I engage you, and they're just here to get something, I'm like, well, then yeah, you don't have any reason to stay here, because you don't want to serve these people around you. You just want to extract from them. And that's, uh, that one-way street is what the immature Christian does. But if they mature, we should be engaging them to mature, to go on to the point that they are ministers they themselves are ministering to others. but It takes time if they'll give it to us, but I think we need to be more direct. I think you're right to address that. Brenda said that. Of the things they did or the things I've done? Again, I look at Paul where he says, I was a chief of sinners and here's what I've done. And he didn't talk about just what he did in the death of Stephen. He says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. All things that men count. So who is he talking to? Who is he trying to convict with that kind of a statement? the people who are trusting in their own righteousness. He says, I was all those things, but it was worthless. None of that gets you to God. In Paul's testimony, it's really really powerful because what made him the worst of sinners was that he was a Pharisee who was against Christ. He was a self-righteous man who knew God's word and yet was kicking against the God he claimed to believe in. He was a hypocrite. He rejected the Messiah. And so you look at his argumentation of, you know, you want to say you're righteous? Well, I had all that going and it didn't do me squat. And so it's rehearsing our own need for mercy that should plant in their minds, well, if that person wasn't good enough for God, how can I be good enough for God? And it's not laundering listing their sin, but why I needed mercy. And you'll hear that in Peel's testimony. You know, I was this, and but I understood that that wasn't good enough. It wasn't so bad I couldn't be saved. Whichever direction it goes into, um, and that's why I, we loved when we were young, listening to Pacific Garden Mission radio station. And you know, talked all these guys, and they just lived like the devil, and and God, but someone was praying for them, and. God got a hold of them and transformed their lives. And so they would stand up and give those testimonies in the mission and to encourage these other guys who are involved in that life to come to Christ. You know, you can be saved. There is mercy for you too. There's mercy for the self-righteous. There's mercy for the wretch. There's mercy for all of them if you turn to God. So I'm just giving my testimony. I think that's what I was referencing more this morning. We go to them saying that here's the avenue of mercy, but you have to acknowledge your guilt like I had my guilt. I was guilty before God, and I had to have his mercy. And that's one of the easiest ways to draw people in to acknowledging they're a sinner, I believe, is to say, I was guilty. So if you think you're good enough for God, well, I was better than you, but I wasn't good enough. If you think you're too evil for God to save you, well, let's bring someone in and say, well, look how evil they were, and God saved them. And so I'll give them, you know, the cross and the switchblade story and things like that. That's not my testimony that of the people that are too evil. But I can handle the people who think they were so, are so self-righteously oriented they think they can sneak into heaven. It's like, well, that didn't work for me. How do you think it's gonna work for you? And it's a comparative thing and association. I feel like you'd like, and, and that's not me. I, mean, I, <laughs> I know it isn't. <laughs> And it's not just time heals all wounds. That's not what you want to portray. You want to say, you know, God is your judge. I'm not your judge. God's the judge. You know what you did. But I'm telling you that I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to restore a relationship with you. But here are the parameters of it. Right. Never been Correct. You have to stipulate those. To, just like God said. You must turn to me, you must love me, and keep my commandments. I will show mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. He set the perimeter right up in the front. And just like we saw um, in Hosea, turn to me, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, know my truth, you'll get my mercy. They should run to your arms, knowing that you're ready to get them. Because yeah. they don't know it's open. And that's why the confrontation, it's hard for us because we think, well, I am telling them that they wronged me, and that's they could be offended at me. Well, who cares? Your relationship's already broken with them, and so they could be offended at you. But now you are saying, here's the path that if you want forgiveness. Here's the path for it. And you're giving them what God gives us. Here's your hope. Here's your chance. And again, they could easily reject it. They could easily smirk at it and say, Pfft, like that's important. Like having a relationship with you it means anything to me. Well, I don't need you. Well, that's what people have been saying to God forever. And so um, that's the, that's the risk. That is the very real risk, and it's going to make some tears happen. And I'm pretty sure that that's why God at the end has plenty of wrath stored up. Because he had so much mercy. It endures forever. I didn't really get that part this morning. It's mercy endures forever, but that's okay. All right. Keep thinking on it. Keep working on it. I really want to keep digging. I want to understand how we need to, what we need to be doing differently, um, to be more merciful as a church and as individuals and towards society at large. How we can be a light of mercy to um, those outside as well.